0: Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome Mitch Weiss, a professor at the Harvard School of Business. And Mitch has written a great book called We the Possibility. Uh, Mitch, can you first tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, Mark. And thanks for having me.
1: It's nice to be here. I um. I grew up uh, interested in a uh, combination of things, in, in building stuff and entrepreneurship, even since I was a little kid, but also public stuff, um, public service even. I, I dressed as a voting booth on uh, growing up one time, uh, <laughs> and I, I've i managed to uh, combine those interests over the course of my life. I worked in the private sector. Before going to business school, I got my first job a working government in business school, working for the city of Chicago, where I'm from. I worked after business school for the mayor of Boston, Tom Adino, in his third term, and then eventually in his fifth term in office, uh, as his chief of staff, is number two. And um, after that, uh, uh, and since, I've spent about eight years as a faculty member, as you mentioned, at the Harvard Business School.
0: Wow. Uh, and, you know, when we were talking before we came on, I was saying, based on what I thought, your position as chief of staff is you're doing all the heavy lifting, the mayor is kind of the front guy trying to sell his policies. But you tell me both of these jobs are equally hard. So give people a little bit of insight about the mayor's job.
1: Well, I certainly still think the mayor's job is harder, but um, it's, it's all hard running. Running cities these days, uh, given the challenges that face us, it's, uh, um, uh, it's very hard. Uh, I think the, the beautiful thing about running cities is you're very close to the problems people are facing. The best mayors uh, stay very close to those people. Uh, my mayor had met more than half the people who lived in our city. And uh, your job is to make your life better every day and um, and, and and hopefully try to stay mostly out of s- some of the purely partisan politics. I mean people joke there isn't a uh, you know a, a blue way or a red way to change a street light or fix graffiti or make sure the school works and certainly there's some politics to all those things, but it, it's really about it's really about focusing the quality of life and, and the community that you're in and, and, and doing real problem
0: solving didn't you say you felt like the mayor's position is maybe maybe the most important uh, position because of who you're affecting and, and the kind of impact you can have on the community.
1: You're certainly, you certainly can have a giant impact on the community. I mean, uh, I've heard uh, uh, politicians and mayors that I, I've gotten to know well say, you know, if, if the mayor's not doing their job, people will know by, by lunchtime. Right? <laughs> so it's a very, very important job. And cool. uh, I was just thrilled to get my start in government
0: in, in city government. So before we jump into your book, why didn't you, or why haven't you so far run for office?
1: <laughs> um, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that I, uh, I admire politicians like my boss, my former boss, who really had a good sense for politics and, and power. And I'm not sure if that's, I, I think that my instincts lie much more in the direction of entrepreneurship and innovation and strategy. Um, so I suppose maybe that's, that's a reason. Um, I've also frankly found other ways to, to try to have an impact. And and certainly I think running for public office is an amazing way to do that. But I think there are many other ways to have an
0: impact as well. And I've pursued those routes. Well, now let's talk about your book. Why did you even write this book? And by the way, the book's an awesome book, um, that's can be very helpful to people running companies. So why did you write this book?
1: Well, it came out of my time working in city government, and in, in particular, the um, uh, last year we were we were in office, uh, the last April when when the marathon uh, was attacked by terrorists and two bombs blown up at the finish line, and we had um, had our best day in Boston, you know, upended, and, and and moreover, lives ended. Three of them on the street that day, hundreds of people wounded, and then as you know, I think from the bookmark I mean. Um, what normally happens in those instances is that, uh, first of all, the generosity starts to flow in from around the world. And the way we channel that generosity, the money that's coming in is, is by relying on the long-established trusted institution in town, collect and distribute funds to families of the um, victims and to survivors. And we also happen to know that was a very slow process. It had been more than 100 days since the shooting at Sandy Hook. None of the money intended for those parents uh, or the families of the other victims had made it to them. It was never going to bring back those kids. Or those adults, but it was intended for them. We wanted to do something faster. We had survivors making decisions about uh, lives and limbs and jobs. And so we decided to start up our own new fund. Long story short, uh, our local established institution in town, the head of it, who's a good person, very good person, by the way, did not like that idea, said, you're going to raise less money, you can't do something new. We did. Uh, We ended up collecting and distributing $60 million in 75 days, fastest, largest relief effort with private money of its kind in the history of our uh, country, I think. Uh, A year later, two survivors asked me to to tell tell them that story. I did. They said, you have to tell the story to others. And I said, it's not my story to tell. I wasn't hurt. I didn't save anyone's life. They said, you have to because you have to show people government can do new things. And so, Mark, I'm left with this Riddle, which was, which is it? Is it what the survivors have witnessed? which is that, that, uh, that government could do new things. Is it what the foundation had, had said? And what honestly, most of us have seen most of the time, which is it can't. And so I wrote the book to try to answer for myself, you know, can we solve public problems anymore? Can we do new things? And of course, to try to share that answer with other people.
0: Yeah, and so what are the three things you're hoping people, when they read this book, before we dive into it, will get out of it?
1: Well, I hope they'll, I hope they'll see that, yes, we can. We can solve public problems anymore but it's gonna require a giant leap in thinking from what I call probability government to possibility government. The first thing they'll need to, I I think, take away from the book, hopefully, is that we need more inventive government. Uh, The second thing is the toolkit for uh, more inventive government, that we'll need government that that has more ideas, we'll need government that can try new things, we'll need government that can scale, and so I hope they come up with some tools for that. And the third thing, and this goes to your point about how the book, I hope, is relevant to more than just those leading government today, is I hope people will realize that if we're going to have possibility government, if we're going to solve the problems that face us, it's going to rely uh, on many more than just our elected and appointed officials, that in fact, people in the public are going to have to give their permission, their encouragement, their co-participation, and entrepreneurs and the people that invest in them are going to have to get involved too. So I hope that they'll realize that um, it's going to take all of us uh, to move uh, together towards possibility if we're going to make our way there.
0: Yeah, and I'm always uh, chagrined by when every when one group is always saying we don't want too much uh, government, but government's the people, and the people also need the private sector to work in tandem with them uh, for us to be successful. And now, you know, I'm 60, and when I was in my 20s, you're essentially we were the world power, and we're not competing with India and China and everybody else. And now we're literally. As Thomas Friedman wrote, it's a flat world and we're all competing against everybody. And, you know, when you graduate college, you're not just competing with people in your own region anymore. And so, therefore, you've got to be more agile. And that brings me to, has the pandemic made governments more agile and entrepreneurial? Well, definitely
1: thousands of public leaders all around the world, um, you know, leapt into the moment and became sort of instant public entrepreneurs. Um, there were others that didn't, <laughs> but many did. Uh, I think the big question, you know, you're asking Mark, is will it's will they stay that way? You right. know, they Aid people more agile entrepreneurial. I think that's an open question. I don't think it's um, unfortunately, I don't think it's inevitable that they'll stay more agile and entrepreneurial. Um, you know, I think it's equally likely that people, out of exhaustion or out of uh, out of again fear of of of, of trying new things uh, under public scrutiny. That they snap back to more status quo-oriented mindset. And so I'm really trying to encourage people, no, take the lessons of, of your agility, your entrepreneurship, your inventiveness out of this moment and carry them forward. There's a, there's a language for what you did. There are other examples, other times for what you did. Go take that inventiveness and apply it towards all the other challenges that face us. I hope they'll uh, be more agile and inventive after all this. I think they can be. I don't think it's inevitable.
0: Uh, who's the mayor now of Boston?
1: We have an interesting situation. We have an acting mayor of Boston, Kim Janey. Um, she, uh, she came to that office because our uh, then mayor, um, Marty Walsh, became the Secretary of Labor for uh, Joe Biden. So it's a bit of a historic time here in Boston. We have our first woman, first black mayor, and, um, and as well, there'll be an election in the fall for, for, uh, to fill that seat uh, you know, for a full term. So it's a very interesting time. Uh,
0: what was it like being chief of staff for the mayor of Boston, living in one of the major technology development capitals of the world? And how did your government take advantage of that?
1: Uh, well, we, I mean, we certainly blessed because the talent that uh, co- comes into and out of our universities, uh, the faculty that were there, we, we borrowed ideas, we, we got advice, MIT, Harvard, other places. But I, I actually think our innovation approach was informed more by the fact that we worked for a, a, a mayor who had met more than half the people who lived in our city. He was adamant about uh, engagement. About participation, and so our innovation approach was—I'm certain—more flavored by that, and the idea that it should be uh, citizen-centered, um, peer-produced, uh, and you know, focus on the problems that face you know people in their in their homes and in their workplaces, than the fact that we were you know um, proximate to the you know some some of the most amazing universities in the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, here in Philadelphia, we're we're like Boston. I mean, we're like mirror cities. We have 83 colleges and universities in the region. And I don't think we've fully taken advantage, aside from the taxes that these folks are paying, um, and and taking advantage of the talent. You know, when I see cities like Austin, Texas, viewed as much more palatable places to start an entrepreneurial company or or helping the city, it just blows my mind uh, when Philadelphia has so much to offer like Boston does in terms of the raw talent that you have. How do you define entrepreneurship and are they born or can they be trained? Because you talk about that in the book.
1: The definition I like for entrepreneurship, and I know there are many, is uh, from my colleague uh, Howard Stevenson, um, who said entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity beyond resources currently controlled. And I think it's the most important, most um, fundamental definition of entrepreneurship I've found. And uh, it, it most definitely implies, and I think this is backed up by the so- social science on this, that entrepreneurs can be trained, that they're not simply born, that it's not a matter of being born you know, Steve Jobs or being born some creative savant, that actually uh, there's a, it's an orientation towards the world uh, about seeing problems as opportunities, about uh, realizing that your job isn't necessarily to maximize the resources you have at hand, uh, but rather to think about opportunities that bring resources to them. And I, I quite like that definition. I also think it's, it's broad. And so that invites public entrepreneurs, those that I think about inside government or outside building forward to say, no, you don't have to start a private company to be an entrepreneur. You don't have to uh, be solving a private problem to be an entrepreneur. As long as you have this orientation towards problem solving uh, and to bring in resources to problems, as opposed to just looking at what you've got in front of you today, you're, you can be an entrepreneur. You can certainly be an entrepreneur in, this, in, the, in the public service.
0: We've had many uh, successful uh, super entrepreneurs on the show, and they all say the same thing. You know, the people who think that they have to be born to be an entrepreneur or to make a difference, um, we're losing, letting a lot of talent lie um, dormant on the side when the people think that way. So they all they all agree with. I haven't had anybody say differently than what you've just said. Your boss, uh, Mayor Minio, said, "Good ideas die of loneliness in government." Has that changed with all the technological innovations over the last 20 years?
1: By and large, I think not. Um, I still don't think we have enough good ideas in government because we don't have enough ideas in government at all. And so you can frankly just look at that pandemic. I mean, go back to last fall and think about when people were wrestling with, how do we get you know schools, the K-12 schools open for young people? And there were like th- three or four ideas. Like We could open the windows, put in some new HVAC, maybe a tent. Why weren't there hundreds of ideas or thousands of ideas for how we get this generation not to lose a year um, of their education or, or this winter as we we're getting ready to distribute vaccines? Why Why were there so few ideas, uh, creative ideas about how to get uh, shots in arms, about how to get people who might be recalcitrant to be more willing to do that? I mean, now we're seeing some more creativity, beers, pizzas, you know, uh, lottery tickets, uh, we'll come to your home, we'll do it mobilely. But we should have been on both these and so many other issues. Uh, full of many more ideas, much earlier, so that we can really solve the problems that face us. I, I still think we have too few, too few ideas.
0: Is that because government is like large corporations, where they snuff out creativity by the levels of bureaucracy?
1: It's for many reasons. I mean, part of it are levels of bureaucracy. Part of it is, you know, um, a kind of uh, you know, uh, you know, risk aversion. It sort of induces a sort of non creativity. You know, if we're going to be too nervous to try it, why would I even think of it? Part of it is we're too closed off to the work to others. Part of it is too much of a reliance on prior expertise instead of future potential knowledge. I mean, there's a part of it is we just we we've gotten so oriented towards maximizing the resources we have at hand that we uh, don't think actually about the second part of that dance, so to speak, that we're so good at making choices, you know, I mean, uh, that we don't, as the designers would say, we don't spend enough time, design thinkers would say, we don't spend enough time creating choices. And I think we have to spend much more time Uh, creating choices, much longer lists of ideas in our private sector and our public sector as well.
0: Politicians like the people who become mayor come in with that thought and then get beaten down by the system or or, or because the number of meetings and and departments and everything else, by the time you get done that, there's nothing really left for you to be, you don't have any more energy left or that you've chewed up all your time just dealing with the day-to-day.
1: Well, all those are risks. Um, yes, the screw, you know all that's risk. You know, and um, uh, um, uh, we have what I describe as as hot stove government, and um, it's this riff on, on Jim Jim March and Jerker General, hot stove in organizations. They they were riffing on Mark Twain, who, who wrote about this cat who jumps in a hot stove and gets burned, and so jumps off, and so uh, learns never to jump on a hot stove again. But the problem is also doesn't jump on cold stoves anymore either. It's a problem of overlearning. From mm-hmm. past mistakes, oh, and I think we have that in government. I think we've overlearned from past mistakes, so we've gotten skittish. And in addition, the the, the stove is turned up to absolutely scalding. Um, social media, especially now, we need accountability. We absolutely need accountability uh, for our public leaders. But it's gotten so um, that yes, many public leaders are me are afraid to suggest or try new things because of their fear of for their fear of being penalized for that. Yes.
0: So the first chapter in your book where you discuss the Special Forces Technology Development and Testing Center, which I thought was fantastic. I just actually got done coaching two um, former Navy SEALs who are now entering the public sector, the private sector, and wanting to be starting their own consulting practices and how creative these folks are. Special Forces are known for their ability uh, to adapt and create to the situation, what did you learn from this center, and what can governments and businesses use from their experience to improve their own capabilities to develop new and practical products and services?
1: I think one of the most fascinating things I learned at this place you're describing, called Softworks, which was this former tattoo parlor off base, off off the, um, you know, uh, off uh, base from where Special Operations Command is, that James Gertz had opened up with Tanner Bates and others. Um, was that how important openness was. Like, imagine this is part of the most secretive part, most elite part of our U.S. military. And you could imagine that what you want to do is keep it locked down, keep it secret, keep it behind closed doors. Why is Gertz basically allowing people to wander in and sort of offer to help out the special forces, see some of what they're doing? Um, You know, uh, why why can you just open the door and there's no military police officer there? And the reason is because in some ways, um, even though maybe openness might feel dangerous, that it's actually closeness, secrecy, that is more dangerous these days. The world is so full of surprise. The world is so full of change that if you're locked down, whether you're a business uh, or a government, uh, and locked down from new thinking, not locked down from new people, then that's, what, that's what's truly perilous. And so to me, that's the most powerful lesson, the lesson around openness um, and, and the pushback at our instinct for, 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 for hiving off and keeping secret and not sharing ideas. And the fact that special operations decided that we they needed to open up to become more agile, to become more future ready, I think is a powerful lesson for everybody else.
0: How do they? How do you actually make that happen? Because you know that's a very stodgy, um, slow to change organization. Even though when you read about admirals and generals at the highest level, tons of PhDs in that group. So there should be some really smart, forward thinking people.
1: Well, they are. They are brilliant. I mean. Um, but they're, they like leaders in all other organizations are, uh, are busy as you alluded to. I mean, these people are literally fighting, fighting battles, um, all the time. Um, they are uh, way down in some ways by the resources they have, the programs that are already in place, the plans that are already in place. It makes it hard to do new things. They are, um, they're, um, some, sometimes the organizations they work in are relatively homogenous so they don't have access to new thinking and different thinking and different backgrounds. And so what Softworks was designed to do was to try to uh, create a space where people who weren't actually fighting battles all day long uh, could get access to new uh, people, could uh, put primacy on new ideas, and that begins to you know, catalyze that kind of activity. Now, you can't stay hive off forever. You need to make sure that those ideas make their way back to the, the mothership, if you will, to the big organization. Uh, Gertz, when he's done doing that at SOCOM, ends up doing much of that at the Navy itself. So um, it's not easy, but, uh, but it's, 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 and, uh, it's necessary, and it's necessary, absolutely.
0: Can you talk about Professor Stevenson's entrepreneurial behaviors, and has that changed since he identified them in 1983?
1: So his biggest, um, I, I, for me, the, the most fundamental insight was this, was this idea that entrepreneurs, as I said, um, uh, you know, their main orientation is not towards the resources they have in hand. But their main orientation is towards problem the world, see those problems, opportunities, bring resources to bear to its opportunities. That's the fundamental starting point. I don't, for me, when I teach entrepreneurship still these days to whether it's to MBAs or executives, it's still that's the same starting point. Uh, in addition, he pointed out the behaviors mark uh, staged commitments. Therefore, for entrepreneurs, instead of fixed commitments for for more administrative managers, still absolutely key. I mean, the central piece of lean startup or. Uh, or hypothesis-driven entrepreneurship, or agile, or all the other, whatever buzzwords you want to use to describe entrepreneurship today, is how do we basically make make stage commitments so that we can benefit from the information that we're generating as we try new things? And I think that is as uh, important today as it was back then. I think for people who want to be solving public problems, this is absolutely key. In public, what we normally do is we, you know, identify some problem, we hire the consultants, write up the RFP, spend five years basically building something. By the time it's delivered, it's not responsive to the problem at hand, or it's received no input from people along the way. And what Stevenson would have told us, what others would say is, I think, I don't want to put a word through their mouth. But uh, what I would suggest is, instead, why don't we actually build, measure, learn our way, as uh, Steve Blank and others would say, build, measure, learn our way. To uh, to these uh, solutions, generating information all along the way, involving citizens all along the way, and improving things as we go. I think those lessons are as powerful today, uh, those lessons of entrepreneurship as uh,
0: as ever. Excellent, and I can see I can see that's pretty much how I think all of us have seen it evolve. What governments and government organizations have managed to become more entrepreneurial? Oh. So,
1: um, well, I, I hesitate to label them because as soon as you do, then they do something which seems completely stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that I think so many of the governments I've seen, they demonstrate pockets of this entrepreneurialism pockets of, of what I call possibility government, but it's not, um, it's not rampant yet. Um, it, and so what I'm hopeful is we'll see more of it in more places. I will tell you um, that there are, there are leaders. I, I I've come to quite um, admire on this front. One um I know you read about in the book, Melvin Carter, the mayor of St. Paul, yes. um, he, uh, for example, has been trying to transform public safety in his community, uh, move towards what he calls community first public safety in his community. And when he announces this on, on this topic of all topics, right, think about how fraught this is, public safety at all. The fact that he's mayor in a city next door to where George Floyd was murdered. Uh, and he says, we uh, will not get this all right the first time around. Publicly, he says this. So it's those kind of leaders, I, I think, who are laying the groundwork to be really good uh, possibility leaders who are, who are being candid with the public about what it's going to take. So um, I've met many I admire along the way. Um, I, I suppose he's just one of them, and they exist in all levels and all
0: around the world. You mentioned that the best-run administrations, if I read this correctly, essentially are roadblocks to innovation. Why is that?
1: Oh, I don't think that's true. I hope I, I, don't, I don't think that I meant it that way. I think that there, I was... I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that having a, uh, what Stevenson would describe as an administrative approach to management, looking at the resources we have at hand and wringing the most out of them, is, in many instances, just the opposite of what's required for possibility for entrepreneurship. But I actually believe that it's the best-funded administrations, the, uh, the best administrative managers that give permission to actually entrepreneurial managers in government in government, if you want to go experiment with the drones picking up the trash, you will not get that permission. You don't deserve it unless you've been good at picking up the trash the, the regular way we've been doing it. So I actually think, uh, Mark, that it's the it's the best run administrations who give permission to the entrepreneurs to um, to go do that in their organization, to go explore. The key is getting that balance correct and um, not letting one side or the other um you know, uh, basically rule the roost, if you will. Yeah,
0: for sure. One of the questions from the audience is: Please comment on the lack of direction at NIH in adopting AI and ML to solve medical science problems.
1: <laughs> That's a very specific question. Um, so um, I don't know that I could speak to um, to it in detail. I will say that um, that artificial intelligence and machine learning are already um, at work. Um, in government uh, by folks working with government to solve public problems, whether they're health problems to this questioner's point or uh, security problems or mobility problems. Um, we are going to have to navigate uh, the benefits we will get from that, uh, as well as the deep risks of that, uh, whether the risks about bias or risks about a lack of autonomy. Um, and uh, again, whether it's NIH or whether it's the DOD or uh, other governments, uh, uh, government agencies, We'll have to both uh, figure out how to use these tools because they will be important tools and figure out how to use them well. And um, I, I think that's going to be one of the great challenges. I, I don't mean to be great. I think one of the big challenges of, of the next decade
0: for sure. I don't think without those, we could have um, gotten to a, a cure uh, as fast as we did. I mean, because I remember I worked for the chairman of Senate Corps in the early 90s and you were always 10 years out from developing any type of drug and to develop something in nine months is just miraculous. And thank God that this happened at this particular time in history or else that, you know, the people would have just said, we can't destroy the economy. Well, just people are going to die. That's just the way it's going to be. And, uh, so I think that, um, maybe NIH has been a little bit slow at adapting it, but, uh, I, I think they're all making that adoption quickly because they've seen the power of it over this particular crisis. Do you agree?
1: Well, I think it's this, I think it's this, it's the, it's, it's, it's seeing the potential in all these technologies, but also the peril and balancing the two. Because uh, for every, you know, um, a solution to which, you know, every problem to which AI seems like it's a solution, it also will create other uh, again, problems of bias, problems of concentration of power, problems of, you know, sort of black box citizens don't know what's going on. And it's going to be up to public leaders just to be savvy in these toolkits and know how to use them and, and how not to. And uh, I'm not for uh, a blanket, uh, say, we should, you know, we should turn everything over to the robots, nor am I for a blanket ban. We need uh, humans in the loop here, so to speak, and uh, to, to make decisions about how, when, where to use this stuff. I think that's the same in health as in so many other
0: places. Another question from the audience. Do you think governments will partner with Elon Musk Hyperloop to connect major cities? I think Las Vegas has a working tunnel a few miles long.
1: They already are. Uh, they already are. Um, and I think um, the, the bigger question is more broadly, how can private entrepreneurs productively, substantively, uh, on the important issues, work with public sector? We're not all going to be Elon Musk. We're not all going to um, uh, uh, have a zillion dollars to throw problems. But um, so many of us can uh, look into our communities and say, there's a mobility problem to this question, or there's a housing problem or affordability problem or a health problem or a schooling problem. And uh, can we bring entrepreneurial um, skills and tactics responsibly to bear to help solve it? And can we partner with, with government to do that? And can governments partner with us? And it's going to take both groups of people getting involved, um, we have seen a uh, an increase in the number of uh, sort of gov tech, if you will, gov tech or civic tech or military tech or ed tech and other tech uh, startups. Uh, we've seen uh, increasingly investors back these startups. So it was just yet another announcement the other day by General Catalyst. They're starting up a civic tech vertical. Um, and so I think we, we will see private entrepreneurs. We are seeing private entrepreneurs work on these problems and private backers back them. And, and again, the challenge is to do that and on the big problems that face us and to do
0: it well. Yeah, I've actually seen in uh, I had a home in Panama and the private sector is the one that created a bunch of the bridges and roads that made Panama economically viable uh, because the government didn't have the money. And then they take a small fee of all the people who drive through. But it turned out to be hugely successful for them and really opened up the country. And when our base moved out, Panama actually uh, I thought it would be detrimental to the country, but it turned out not to be that way. It turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to Panama.
1: Well, I will, you know, on that front, I do think it would be a mistake to look only to the private sector for this kind of funding. Um, people are uh, inclined to say, uh, well, when it comes to innovation, when it comes to exploration, when it comes to trying things for government that might not work, the last thing we should do is spend public money on that. And I think that's wrong. I think, in fact, we should spend public money wisely, prudently, without wasting too much time or too much money, but precisely on exploring uh, frontiers. I don't want to leave that entirely up to private capital. I don't think uh, that's either possible or wise, uh, frankly, um, or or uh, historical, that it's, 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 it's in fact true. Other uh, scholars have pointed this out, that some of the most important innovations in our private sector have come from public sector uh, funding. Our most important innovations in the public sector have come from public experimenters and, and taxpayer money. And so while I want the private uh, private entrepreneurs to be partners here, I don't believe we should cede it all to them. The public uh, and even public monies need to be invested in exploring new solutions for government uh, if we're going to do it well and do it right.
0: Israel has a different view and goes maybe more along the lines of what you're saying is that um, the public sector can develop this technology, have its uses, and then license it out uh, to the private sector and really create even uh, a ripple effect uh, and growing opportunity for all the citizens because of that. And so much of the technology that's been uh, created in Israel that's gone worldwide has essentially come from the government.
1: That's true here too. Go back and look at the history of Silicon Valley and how much it is linked to uh, uh, public innovation, especially in the pursuit of uh, our national security. I mean, GPS uh, is just one example. (laughs) of a key technology that's that's uh, been so important for our, our world and our economy. Um, and the
0: internet, uh, of course, right? Because it was meant the as so a backbone. Cool here
1: too. Yeah, for the Cold so War. It's only, yeah, so many instances.
0: Um, people often think when pushed to the brink, innovation will save the day. Um, but Mr. Gertz, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, found this to be wrong. Why did he think this and is it true?
1: Well, his experience was that that in a crisis, people um, basically tried to hustle their way out of it, he told me. People tried to uh, basically uh, rely on what they already knew. Uh, and it's not just his experience. I recall talking to somebody uh, in, in the, in, uh, who worked in the White House last year, who said during a crisis, you know, the golden rule is to um, use the tools you already have. And I, I said, well, that's odd. I thought the golden rule was to do unto others what you want done unto yourself. I didn't realize there were two golden <laughs> rules. But, uh, but the point is, um, uh, you know, people do oftentimes uh, tend to look at the toolkit they already have in a crisis. Uh, they're so busy and they're so uh, they're so, um, you know, worried about trying new things that might only possibly work. I um, and so I think that was Gertz's experience as well. And so he he, he what he wanted to go new idea finding, um, you know, outside of crisis. And I think that's a very powerful lesson there. I mean, We cannot. We cannot wait for crises uh, to uh, to solve our problems. We cannot adhere to that old, that old line, you know, crisis is a terrible thing to waste. We, because, first of all, it may well be that in the middle of the crisis, we can't be as innovative as we want to. But mostly, Mark, mostly, our job is to prevent these crises from occurring in the first place. If we had been more prepared around uh, our public health infrastructure otherwise, this pandemic would have been much uh, less um, um, fatal and damaging to our economy than it was. We can't wait. And so the point is, don't wait for crisis to be innovated. Um, uh, we need to find ways to uh, deploy a possibility toolkit before and after, and on so many other problems so we don't end up in these instances um, in the first place. So, so when we do, we, we can handle it much better than we have.
0: Uh, I, I'm going back to something you earlier said. You wrote about um, Mayor Melvin Carter of St. Paul and how he leveraged groups of volunteers to help him select cabinet leaders and department heads. Was that a political stunt or was he being innovative and did that work?
1: Oh, no, that was not a stunt. I mean, he is uh, through and through somebody who believes in in the community helping to lead the city. He, In his inaugural address, he goes off script, everyone's clapping, and he says, don't don't clap, you're not going to help. I mean, he really believes that uh, in order to make uh, cities work well, government works well, everyone needs to be involved. And um, that's been a through line in all the work that he does. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, he continues to lead that fashion to this day when he was trying to change his budget, um, in St. Paul, he created a budget board game where that he brought around to bars and restaurants and sat with citizens and had them, them try to solve the, the budget riddle, uh, so to speak. I mean, uh, uh, there was one of these actually, uh, uh, the head of his libraries, I think who had been recommended by the citizen commission ends up suggesting we, we should waive library fines in, in St. Paul. They go ahead with it. It turns out to be a huge boon to uh, circulation, um, and uh, it was like opening up new, another branch for a relatively modest amount of waived fees. And so, oh yeah, that's a that's a total ethos of his. He says my best ideas are other people's heads, and that's the
0: way he leads. And that's so smart, uh, even in organizations, right? If everything just came from the CEO, the organization would eventually fail because he can't possibly have all the best ideas. And so that's why the smartest organizations, right, are having people come up with them and, take ch- and run with those ideas. Yes. Could you tell the story of Jimmy Chen and what he learned uh, by going into the field to figure out how to match technology with how people actually needed to use it?
1: Sure. So uh, Jimmy Chen was a uh, Stanford graduate. He had worked at uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, became a very successful product manager at those places. Um, he decides ultimately to leave Silicon Valley, moves to Brooklyn. He wants to build technology for in- Americans of low income. He says basically, you know, we technologists don't build for, for, um, for that community. Um, and um, he eventually finds himself uh, waiting in line for, uh, for SNAP benefits, for food stamps in a, in a Brooklyn office in, uh, in New York. And so the question you ask yourself is well, why is Jimmy Chen waiting in line for food stamps? He's not eligible. Um, but he's not a fraudster either. Um, and the reason he was waiting in line was he was waiting in line for insight. He was trying to, trying to develop some empathy um, to sort of, at least even for the moment, walk in the shoes of people who are trying to apply for, for federal benefits to feed their families and feed their kids. And um, what he learns while he's there are many things, but including he's, he's, um, he observes just how many people are, are, are on their mobile phones while they're sitting in this food stamp office for hours waiting to apply. And they end up going out and thinking they're going to develop a, uh, an app to apply for food stamps on your mobile phone. Eventually, they realize through more observation that what what's what is vexing many uh, food stamps applicants is not actually the application process so much, but the management process. What are their what are their benefits? How, how many have they spent over what period of the month? How many they have left? And so they end up pivoting their product into a, a food sort of a food stamps benefits checking app and management app and. And now has, I think, well over four million users who use it on average fifteen times or so a month. And uh, I think it's just one example of, of uh, trying to get out of our uh, bubble. Sometimes we build technology and trying to go uh, without without presuming to, to that you're going to know what someone's life is like by spending an afternoon uh, in a snap office or in their living room, uh, but trying to understand how they use products, how they experience the world, how they experience their government and trying to build uh, build for
0: them. Well, that's what companies like Procter & Gamble have been doing for a very, very long time, is having people follow people around their house to find out how they use things in order to develop the next generation or an, a new product that didn't already exist. Uh, is go- this is a question from the audience. Is government on the right path to fast-track clean energy, uh, solar and electric versus slowly phasing out fossil fuels?
1: Um, are we in the right? I think we're in a better direction now than we were um, not too long ago. Um, uh, we are going to have to do considerably more, I think, if we're going to get to net zero. Um, and uh, it's going to require a lot of inventiveness on the part of the public sector and the private sector. What I would say is, what's important on, on, on as we move towards uh, you know greener energy, is that we're just very clear with the public that we're going to uh, support a lot of new investment. Uh, a lot of new kinds of technologies, a lot of new companies, and not all of them will succeed. And uh, you know, uh, uh, and that's all that we'll do it prudently. And the net, the net of our investment will be uh, huge returns financially and uh, for our climate. Um, but that there will be some failures along the way. And if we if we don't say that upfront, we we'll be making a mistake and setting ourselves up for the inevitable, you know, s- scandal. Which is oh, this particular technology didn't pan out. Well. Well, of course it didn't, but there may, be, uh, may well have been uh, many others that did. And, and um, it's important that we be, uh, start that narrative today as it comes to, you know, greening our, our, uh, our economy here in our society. Um, can you please explain the concept of desire lines? Sure. So it's not a concept of mine. So it's actually what I heard from Carter and one he, I, I think, got from, um, from Jeanette Sada uh, Khan, who was the head of uh, transportation under Mike Bloomberg. She's written about this in her book. Desire lines, and um, and I can make it concrete with a story. So basically, when they when they were leading in New York, they noticed there was uh, uh, a uh, between Sixth and Seventh Avenue there was a, a street where 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 people were crossing the middle all the time, get from one building to like another, and not at the crosswalks. And so, what do they do? They put in a crosswalk in the middle of the street. What would most governments do in that situation? Put a police officer there, start giving tickets or jaywalking, tell people to move down to the other side of the road, but no, they looked at actually how the citizens were behaving and try to make government work to them. It's, it's, it's this process has been repeated over and over when, when people in, in the public um, transportation space or other um, urban planning spaces or even university planning spaces may build a new, uh, say college campus and not lay the sidewalks until after they've seen where the people have walked and then put the cement down. That, that's why they're called desire lines and, and Jeanette calls them the roadmap of opportunity. It's a way of seeing how people experience their their public realm and even their government, and meeting them there instead of forcing them to, to use government the way we think it should work for them. And I think it's a really powerful concept. Not in every instance can we just design for citizens. I mean, uh, um, and for people. I mean, if we just did that, you know, at some level uh, it, it, it wouldn't work because people disagree, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, but in many instances, and, and uh, for a lot of the basic work we do in government. If we just watched how people experience their life, use government and then met them there or met them halfway, our product, our services and programs would be much more effective.
0: Along those lines, what are the best practices for leveraging citizen brainpower and actually implementing the ideas so citizens know they are taken seriously? And also, what have been some of the best citizens ideas you have come across?
1: So I think on best practices, um, Sid Harrell, others have written on this. I one of them I uh one of her recommendations I like I like best is is find citizens in the sort of hour and place of their need. So if you want to get really good ideas from citizens, go meet them where they're experiencing this pain point in their life or in, in their government service. Uh it's it's gonna be more enlightening than just asking them, you know, or sending them some survey or inviting them to some town meeting. Um so I think meet them in the hour of their need. Um If you want them to take you seriously again and again, close loop with them, get back to them. If you use their idea, tell them. If you didn't tell them, it's important that they know. I have some colleagues who wrote a fascinating paper on, uh, basically they call it, you know, um, uh, basically what they wrote about was make sure that government is is telling the public about what they're doing and increases uh, participation and trust in government. And I think it's as important here as it is, anywhere. Uh, this paper they wrote called surfacing the submerged state. Um, and then best ideas from citizens. Um, I can tell you about a powerful idea, uh, that I find very fascinating, which is I had the occasion to follow Singapore's response to COVID, uh, parts of their response to COVID over, the last year, including the race to build a, uh, Bluetooth tracing, uh, based, uh, contact tracing app called eventually called trace together over an eight week period of time as a supplement to all the other things they were doing to try to, um, Uh, tamped down COVID in Singapore. And what I find fascinating is that idea came from uh, not a public health expert per se, not a person in Singapore government per se, not even a Singaporean, but that the people in Singapore government, uh, who I got to know, Jason Bay and others, had known of this idea from a sophomore high school in Virginia from years earlier during the Ebola crisis. And also some computer scientists who had written on this idea. So a very powerful idea by a young person, a young person uh, in a prior crisis gets picked up Uh, by government officials from the other side of the world. And I think it shows the power of of outside thinking, of of new thinking, um, and uh, and open yourself up to that kind of thing.
0: I have to say, I I taught seven years for the National University of Singapore. What amazed me about Singapore is one night I'm in a cab, and they're having a national call-in on the radio, and the uh, president is going through each cabinet member to give a a 15-minute update on what's happening. And then open it lines for people to contact them. And then for ideas, telling them where to email their ideas. And then they tell people about how they've taken past ideas and implemented them. I thought, man, this is the most efficient government in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are aspects of it we wouldn't mimic here. But there um, there were absolutely um, a huge investment there made over the last uh, several years on, on on public entrepreneurship, and uh, this was one example.
0: Yeah. Um, somebody writes here in, thanks for this discussion, including the examples of Mayor Carter and the SNAP app. What other examples of innovation have you seen in social services, public health, foster care, etc.? Well, there's
1: an example I know you and I, I think you, you were maybe gonna um, ask me about, I know you've been curious about, which is uh, uh, around opioid addiction. Yes. Um, so, um, a former student of mine actually uh, organized this thing called Hacking Heroin in Cincinnati, where she was from, to try to help on the heroin epidemic there. Uh, this is
0: Ann Riddickers?
1: This was Annie Riddickers. Yes. And um, so uh, so I find this example fascinating. She, she starts this hackathon to work on opioids. She calls it Hacking Heroin. I beg her not to call it that. <laughs> I was like, already, a hackathon seems way too spurious a solution to an epidemic of this size. And now you're going to call it Hacking Heroin. And, um, to her great credit, she, she did anyways. And she ended up, uh, I think doing a couple of very important things she and the, those that she worked with, which was inviting the community of Cincinnati to say, we all have to work together. And you might be some sort of, you mentioned PNG, you might be some PNG, you know, weekend warrior who usually spends the weekends in their khakis or fishing or, uh, whatever. Instead, spend the weekend here trying to work on some technology and some other solutions to help with the opioid epidemic. So a giant invitation to the community also de So we can all work on this. We all have family members who are struggling with this. Um, and, um, and so I thought it was a very powerful example of inviting outsiders in also in the right way, because at the same time, she had people who lived through the problem, um, you know, family members, people who had been uh, addicted to opioids, uh, EMS, uh, you know, uh, first responders, uh, public health experts, hospital presidents, great example of trying to integrate, uh, both some new thinking with some expert thinking, uh, and, um, and look, did they solve the opioid epidemic in Cincinnati weekend? Absolutely not. No. Uh, did they give this invitation? Did they um, uh, include some uh, people in the conversation who hadn't been? Uh, yes. Did they uh, uh, come up with some technology that could be helpful? Um, yes, including one that was uh, built out to help match people who needed, actual needed resources with available beds and things, um, which got built out. Did this lead to uh, more and more efforts to try to solve other uh, public health problems with novel solutions? Yes. And so I think that's one other example I find um, uh, just uh, you know just really intriguing. I, would I suggest a weekend hackathon and every big problem that faces us is a solution? Absolutely not. Is extending the invitation, inviting new people in, being open to new ideas part of a strategy for solving the big problems that face us? Absolutely yes.
0: Is there such a thing as too many ideas and could that paralyze the process to selecting a solution?
1: I mean... Yes, I mean, we've all been there, right? Where you're heads down and like the sixth or seventh project going on the boss walks in and says, hey, how about this new idea that they learned at the bakery or the coffee shop or from some friend? And you're like, really, another new idea? And so, I, yes, I, and we have to acknowledge that even as I'm saying we need more new ideas, that it, it, it adds to the complexity of managing today's organization. But I would just say on balance, Mark, on balance, when it comes to public problem solving, um, we are too short. We are not yet at the place where I'm bound with too many ideas, and I hope this, this toolkit of possibility of government will lengthen the list. For, for right now, we could do with a much longer list.
0: I, I, what I like about involving the public is that they feel that they have some control over it. I think forever people feel like the government is adversarial to them and that they have no control and it's run amok. But if they're included in the process and they can see some of their ideas actually being executed, I ran a large trade association that I started, and I found that to be really very successful for me, is sharing here the three ideas that we've come up with uh, from all the ideas that you've suggested. We implemented these three, and here were the results. So I think the government's smart to go and do that. Uh, In the book, I thought the subheading possibility versus delusion was interesting. How do organizations stop themselves from going down a rabbit hole while thinking they're on the road to a brilliant solution.
1: Right. So well, I'm glad you found it interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I spend much of the book saying we need to move on from what I call probability government, doing things that are mostly safe, achieving mediocre outcomes, to possibility government, doing the new things might only possibly work. But if they did, they'd be transformative. But then I say, look, we have to make sure we don't go from probability to possibility and past it all the way to something else entirely, which is like delusion. And this was a, a riddle I picked up from a venture capitalist, Eric. Eric Paley. And so I started to dig in. Well, like, how do we know the difference between possibility and delusion? It's actually hard oftentimes up front. Uh, new ideas are hard to distinguish uh, whether they're, you know, this, this, line between being genius or being, you know, something really silly uh, upfront. It's hard to know. And honestly, if we take every idea that looks silly and squash it in its infancy, we'll never get, we'll never get anywhere. But there are some ways I've, i I sort of uh, come to believe and after going back and talking to lots of folks I've met along the way uh, that we can know whether we've gone down the rabbit hole you described, Mark, or or not. And um, I think on ideas, so, on ideas, um, have you raised them with the people? To, to much of our conversation. Have you raised them with the people you're trying to help? Um, uh, I, I, do they address underlying problems, not just symptoms? I think those are some key guardrails. I'm trying new things. I think making sure that the rewards do substantially outweigh the risks. I think I'm trying new things, making sure that um, that if there's going to be failures, the cost that failure. Can be borne by people who can afford it. Um, I think on trying new things, Gertz would say, make sure that your cycle time of um, you know learning essentially isn't isn't longer than the the, circu- the sort of cycle time of changing circumstances on the ground. All important things on scale, because we have to scale these ideas eventually. I think you're making sure that you're not um, creating systemic risk. I think making sure you're not you're not making uh, certain problems worse, like inequity. And so I do think there actually is there are some guardrails. I list I, I think some two dozen in the book, but These are some of them to uh, to make sure that we yes we move to possibility but not to something actually much more more dangerous and um, you know we need to be careful of
0: that. Uh, James March mentions the use of concepts of exploration and exploitation. How are they used, and do uh, do you lead to does it lead to great usable ideas?
1: Yeah, so what March meant was we need to have parts of our organizations, whether the private sector, you know, in my instance I'm talking public sector mainly, but we we need to have parts of organizations that are um, good at exploiting what we are good at, good in the present. And we need to have parts of organization that are good at exploring, good at probing the future. And the best organizations will have, will have both. And um, uh, I, uh, I think he's right. And, I, and my uh, colleague, Mike Tushman and his co-authors have, have gone on to talk about ambidextrous leadership, having this ability to look to the present and the future at the same time. And I think what we need is ambidextrous government. I think we need government to the, to the point about the, tra- we need government that can pick up the trash, uh, and, the, and also explore the idea of drones picking up trash. We need leaders in government who can have a nine o'clock meeting on the KPIs for trash pickup at a 9.30 about you know, this, this, this silly little drone thing. And so um, I think that will be really important uh, in order to be able to get us to new ideas on the one hand and to make sure we can maintain trust and credibility uh, at the same time and the other. We need to have this, this ambidexterity. Uh, it, will be, it will be absolutely key.
0: Uh, what technologies do you think will have the greatest impact on government over the next five to 10 years?
1: I would, I would hazard a prediction. I mean, um, I've studied so many of them that are right at play right now, uh, um, AI, um, sensors, uh, blockchain for government. I mean, I can promise you that there are examples of governments all around the world using these technologies right this, right this moment. I, um, I had the occasion to, to go to the Republic of Georgia to study uh, what they were doing about using the blockchain to, to protect their property from the Russians, right? Put the people's property registry out on the, blo- on the Bitcoin blockchain, make sure it was immutable, so to speak. I mean, I've seen, I've seen episodes of each of these technologies and others in um, so many places. I, I couldn't really tell you which one of them is going to be most important when out. and without being too glib, I, I guess what I would say is, Mark, that the technology of innovation and invention itself, possibility, is needs to be the the. It's not about which particular bits and bytes, which particular hardware we end up using. The technology we need up most is a technology in government and by the people working with them of invention, of possibility at all, of trying new things. And if we get that right over the next decade, I think we can solve the problems that face us. So we can use these new tools, whether it's AR or VR, or, uh, whether it's AI or uh, whether it's you know. Quantum computing, whatever it is, it's actually the underlying technology invention and possibility that we that we need most.
0: What kind of people does government need to recruit to keep costs down, maximize the assets of the community, and influence of the main leader? I mean, what, what kind of people do they need to start recruiting going forward? And and has it changed since you were in government?
1: I would say. First of all, I want to acknowledge there are amazing people who work in government at all levels and, and in so many places. And um, when I talk about we need possibility government, and, and when, you, when you ask a question, Mark, like which people do we need? I like to start with the people that are already there. There are many people inside government who are just waiting for the invitation to be invited out of the woodwork, to say it's OK to have your new ideas, to be told it's OK to try new things as long as you don't waste too much time and money doing that. And so uh, task number one is to, is to really focus on how do we develop and reward and retain the potential inventors who are there right now. And then, in addition, we also need to attract outsiders in, people with a possibility toolkit, um, to, uh, yes, help us invent and try and scale new solutions. And it has changed somewhat, Mark, in that there have been a slew of programs in our country and other countries at the city, state, and federal level to try to attract these outsiders in, whether it's something like the government digital service in the UK, the US digital service here in the US, 18F. Uh, also at the federal level, whether it's things like our mayor's office of New York Mechanics or a mayor's office of Civic Innovation, or so many other efforts, fellowships. Um, there are proposals now in Congress to put even more money behind digital services. Um, and so, yes, we are attracting people um, with this skill set into government. We'll we'll need to keep doing that. Some of them for tours of duty, some of that longer term. I think of a young organization I, I quite admire, Coding It Forward, that was started by some Harvard uh, Harvard and Wellesley College students. To try to uh, tell computer scientists, young computer scientists, just graduating college, you can take these software engineering skills and put them to you serving your country, uh, whether it's at the census or the VA. And, um, and, and they were overwhelmed with, with young people wanting to do that. I, um, in terms of who we might attract in, if we can attract in young people, if we can tell a generation today, like, like I was told, yes, you can combine your skills in entrepreneurship and, and your interest in serving the public. Uh, then uh, we have actually a, more than a fighting chance of solving the problems
0: that face us. So here's my last question for you: What kind of skills do today's executive political leaders need to do the job in a quickly changing environment? Because man, it's got to be really smart to be running today's governments or even today's uh, companies, um, because you have to adapt to so many things so quickly, and the things are changing so rapidly. So. What's the skill set you think they need from your own observation?
1: So I think of um, entrepreneurship as uh, as leadership under uncertainty. You know that's how we teach it at Harvard Business School. Um, and by, at the end of the semester, we end up you know arriving to a point with the students, especially over this last uh, year and a half with COVID and and so much else. To say like um, all uh, all in some ways all leadership is entrepreneurship because all things are uncertain. And so I think that the leaders today, private and public need the toolkit of entrepreneurship, need, uh, need to know how to lead under uncertainty. For me, I think possibility government is that, is that approach. You need to know how to try new things. Uh, you need, uh, prior to that, to know where to get the ideas and post to that, to how to scale them. I think you need to be uh, um, um, clear and candid, if you're a public leader these days, that the status quo is the dangerous choice, um, that uh, you know, standing on a, you know, where we stand today is not going to get us to where we need to go. Uh, you need to be honest with the public about that. And then you tell them like it is. You need to say, look, we're going to go try a bunch of new things. You're going to do it with us. Not all of it's going to succeed. Um, and we're going to do it without wasting too much time, too much money. And But the ones that we succeed at will be transformative. I think public leaders today need the skill set of, of entrepreneurship. They need a possibility skill set. They need to be possibility leaders. And they need to invite their citizens to be possibility citizens, too. We all get the government we invent. And so we all have to be better, uh, better at that, for sure.
0: I, I think Obama tried that. And... Pete didn't sell it quite right with uh, his uh, Affordable Care Act. He should have sold it as a startup, that there was going to be mistakes along the way and that it just kicked off. And now everybody gets to, you know, Republicans and Democrats can take it to the next level because I thought that was a very innovative idea and and turned out to help a lot of people. I think
1: um, more public leaders should say uh, it's not all going to work, you know, right. At this... Right. I
0: agree with you. And they yeah. can be
1: skilled. at. And they and they and frankly, they should be skilled at rolling them out in ways that allow afford uh, rapid learning and rapid improvement.
0: I have to tell you, Mitch, I really enjoyed the hour that you spent with us here. I really enjoyed the book. I hope people will uh, read your book because it's good not just about government, but good for uh, companies that you want to grow and the cultures that you want to facilitate uh, with the people that get behind you and whatever your idea. And also realizing that um, the government needs a lot of help, and we have to jump in. And we have to be willing to work with them and not just point the fingers and saying government's failing without stepping up, right? Uh, so I thank you again for taking the time. Did you want one last comment?
1: No, I was just gonna thank you. I thank you for taking your stage uh, so that's so focused uh, on entrepreneurship and, and saying, yeah, that means public entrepreneurship too. I
0: really appreciate it. Well, we see thank yous coming in here as well uh, for people writing it. Everybody, have a wonderful weekend. Again, Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time. Bye, everybody. Be safe.